chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. We've been watching over the last six chapters Daniel's steady climb up the ladder, all while not really playing by Babylon's rules. Not being offensive, but being this sort of prophetic witness or this faithful follower of Yahweh, even in a foreign land. Held captive, taken over as a young boy, seeking to be like enculturated into the way of Babylon. He has resisted that enculturation all the while being a good citizen. This book has this prophetic element in a moment like this. And we've returned to it in so many different ways over the years because in a moment where the sands seem to be shifting, where there's new cultural confusion, where the dominant narratives in our world don't always align and especially seem to um, be disorienting because they're especially not aligning even antagonistic in a post-Christian world like we find ourselves in. Daniel seems to have a whole lot to teach us. And here is Daniel, just three administrators over this whole area. Daniel's one of them. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, you can circle that, that the king planned to set him uh, over the whole kingdom. <laughs> Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. This should have some callback if you've been following along with us to chapter 1. Same kind of deal is happening again. There are some folks that are looking at this outsider. You're not blood. You shouldn't even be here. You haven't even played by all the rules and yet you still are climbing the ladder in some ways faster than many of us. The technical definition for this group are haters. Glad a few of you like that. <laughs> this is what they are. That's great that you're climbing the ladder, but you're not one of us. You're not blood. Man, we don't see any of that today. They try to find grounds for charges against Daniel, but they're unable to do so. Why? They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. You could circle that if you're taking notes. Corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against the man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. This is the only way that we are going to get him. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Butter up the boss. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now it should be noted here, this isn't because they are so deeply religious and it clearly doesn't seem to be anything related to just how much they really love Darius. This is a political move. Many commentators have pointed out this is a way of gathering up power. We're going to centralize power. We're going to create a populist movement. We are going to kind of pull everybody together. 
by saying, like, look, of all the other different narratives that exist in the world, we want you to pledge allegiance first and foremost here. It's just a strong, good old-fashioned nationalistic move, but it has this whole, like, undercurrent, which is this is how we're going to get this Daniel guy out of here. Daniel has power, and he shouldn't, and here is a way to do that. And so there are these binding laws that even though he is king, he needs to fall in line with, especially when all his advisors and governors and different people are agreeing with this. He wants what would come out of this in theory, which would be a stronger unity. Not knowing, it's important to note that King Darius does not know this is a trap against Daniel. So this edict to enforce this decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during this time, anyone who pledges allegiance to anyone else over the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So clearly it was okay some other times, just not now. Verse 8. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. They're just like spurring him on. In accordance with the law of Medes and the Persians, which is a whole backstory. They are doing everything possible to firm this move up. This can't be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. You could circle open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. How punk rock is this? He hears the decree. And he's like, cool. And then just goes on and does the thing that he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Many people have pointed out where Daniel would have been praying in his house from what we know of these ancient Babylon cities, which is actually more than you might think. There was the way the windows were, which had grates, sort of obscured the view so you couldn't look in. So the argument really is, and it seems to line up with the text, is they had to kind of be actively looking to trap Daniel. Thank you. So, the key, these men, finding Daniel praying, go to the king, and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Just a reminder, Garius. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 years, 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands, yeah, in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Like, why, why are you reminding me of this? And then we find out why. Verse 13, then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, those other people, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Now, for those of you who know the story, why was he distressed? Say again. He likes Daniel. He's not distressed. Like, why, why, is my, why is this bro not, like, bowing down to me? No. He's greatly distressed. And it says he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him because the, the edict was that it had to happen within the day. He had to be thrown into the lion's den. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. They see the soft spot 
And they're like, I know you want to change it, but you can't. Like, they got you. Like, you said, but you said, but you said. My kids do this all the time. But, Dad, you said. I'm like, I am allowed to change my mind. Yeah, it doesn't matter, but you said. It's like, where? Like, I'm right. I have to be so careful with my language. Anyone else have, like, a nine-year-old? They got to, like, gosh, look, I'm raising a lawyer. <coughs> so the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. By the way, this was a normal thing for them to have lions. This was like what you would, I mean, these were the, what you would hunt. This was like the kingly venture of like you would go out and you'd release the lions to hunt. Um, some of these, uh, you know, some of these really epic scenes you'll sometimes capture in movies about the great Babylon. Or you even see it pop up in films that are in like adjacent parts of the, of the world like, I don't know, watch like Aladdin in the movie. Like you see this spectacular beast. You're like, was that real? Like that really was real. It was a show of power. It was a show of power. And so to throw, in a very barbaric time, to throw someone to the lion's den would not have been a strange thing. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, maybe there were tears in his eyes, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. If you notice in your translation, there's an exclamation point. That's not like just somebody random decided to put that in. It's trying to reinforce in the best way we can in English that this was a heartfelt cry. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles. Captain Planet. So that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment, we know what that is, being brought to him, and he could not sleep. King Darius is torn up. What does this tell us about the relationship between Daniel and the king? It's good. It's warm. What do we remember from the chapter before? His relationship with Nebuchadnezzar had become what? Good. Warm. Strong. Belshazzar, his son even, even though it doesn't seem like there's much of a relationship, clearly has all of this respect for Daniel and calls him in at a key moment. And when Daniel delivers, right, that hard prophetic word that we talked about last week, he still brings him in and clothes him in purple robes. Daniel seems to be doing all right. And this, who this is bothering are the satraps, are the other aides that are at the same level as him. And here is the king not able to sleep, not able to eat, at the first light of dawn. So as soon as the king could do something about what's happened, he gets up and he hustles. The king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. In an anguished voice. This is the king running to someone from the tribe of Judah, an outsider who had just been thrown into the lion's den. And he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Like, man, I hope this thing is, is real. I hope your God has rescued you. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. It's like all hail the king. May God, my God, sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. Interesting here, by the way, just note, 
my God sent the angel and he shut. God shut. You could circle that. God shut the mouths. Even in a case like this, you'd be like, I did it. You should have seen me. Darius, I was all like, like, no. That was me, by the way, closing the mouth of a lion in case you were. Is that not the right move? Kyle Maxey, that's the right move, right? Okay. <laughs> he shuts the mouths of the lions. He says, God did it. God did it. Again, this is a pattern if we're studying this text. Those of you who been at home churches walking through this text, how many times, every time there's a chance for Daniel to boast, he's like, now it's God. Hey, let me be very careful, even says in one chapter, I want you to know this isn't about me. This was actually God. I know I'm killing it at work. I know I climbed the corporate ladder. I know I was able to do this. I know my kids are like such utter perfect angels. <laughs> we preaching yet? God did it. It's God. All of it's a stewardship. Anything good that you see come out of me, my goodness, it is rooted in the love and blessing and strength of God. That does something to you. God doesn't need your praise. It does something to you. It breaks off entitlement. Stop it. This is all you. This is all God. All God. So real quick, for those of you who are paying attention to the text, I <laughs> caught that one. For, for those of you thinking, like, wait a minute, what about the law? There was an ancient legal custom called innocence by ordeal, where long story short, if a defendant's guilt was at all in question, they would put him through some kind of test of fire. So this one would be the lion's den. The most common was the water ordeal, it was called, uh, where they would put you in a life or death situation, say throw you in the middle of a river. And if you made it out, it was a sign that God or the gods had cleared your name and you were innocent. And if you died, well, clearly you were guilty. So our legal system has obviously come a long way since then. <laughs> but when Daniel is there and awake and alive the next morning to the ancient Near Easterner, this would have been a sign that, oh, God's cleared this man's name. He's not guilty. He's innocent. This is why, again, for the discerning reader, the king is able to do what he does next year. When Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel, so the satraps, were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. This is a barbaric time. It's a barbaric time. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. All the, like, 12-year-old boys just, like, perked up. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence, reverence the God in, of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Again, you have a king jumping into a praise break. If you're brand new with us, I'm so sorry, you're literally jumping in like six weeks into a series. But we've seen this rhythm, if you're new to this text, you're new to the Bible, or new to any of this, where the oppressor is, um, gets to bear witness and see what this God is like 
to witness somebody who thinks a different way about the world be respectful, honoring, loving, caring, do their work really well, but not bow to certain ways of thinking about the world, trusting there's actually a better way, doing so with humility, and what that does to power and we know this through history, it either causes power to persecute and kill or it causes power to actually change their tune. Daniel has little power, but Daniel has influence. And that's what we have as followers of Jesus. I would humbly submit that we are not invited to a posture of power over but to follow the cross, which is power under. And I think we can say that Jesus had a little bit of influence by laying down his life for everybody. Power under. This is to be our posture. So how do we do this? Or as I would like to affectionately um, just put it on the screen here, how do we Daniel? There it is. How do we Daniel? <laughs> how do we do this? couple things, three things I'd like you to write down if you're taking notes. Excellence, two is character, and the last is faithfulness. Really simple. Daniel 6.3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Exceptional qualities. There was a work ethic and a skill and a talent and ability to do his job well. We read in chapter 1, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned Daniel and his friends, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So one of the reasons Daniel rose to influence in Babylon wasn't just God's favor. It was because he did a really good job. He did a really good job. We read that whatever you do, in the New Testament we read, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All of your life. We all know it's possible to do a job to parent your kids in a lame and despondent and detached sort of way. Right? We can all be a student in a detached, lame kind of way. But in light of this, we actually can't. We do it all for the glory of God. And usually when we do that, it's better. Every stitch and every lecture and every paper, as if Jesus were coming over. As if our ultimate boss was Jesus, because he is. Everything takes on new weight, and it leads us into excellence. Now, excellence is not perfection. Some of you may be really just struggling in your job. But it is a posture, a posture of ownership and excellence. Excellence happens, hear this, excellence happens when everything in your life takes on holy intent. Like there's a reason for this. God, I, every bit matters to the, to the Lord. Every bit. We have missed this in parts of the church. Dorothy Sayers says, our approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his faith makes upon him is that he should make good tables. 
Like the mundane and the secular actually become weighty and significant because the idea of sacred and secular is literally one of the things that Jesus came to tear down. It's all holy, it's all good, and it's all beautiful. This is why artists, we're doing the creative collective, we sometimes get it mixed up. As a fellow artist, it's like if I don't put like Jesus in there, John 3.16, or a fish in the like, bottom corner of my painting, it's somehow not Christian. Now, we've talked a lot about this over the years. I hope there's not many that still think that. But my goodness, this is not what we are invited to do. In her book, What Work Matters to God, we read, I don't think that anyone would have preferred that Handel or Bach had quit composing music and become full-time, as a full-time evangelist. Or that William Wilberforce had quit Parliament to become an evangelist, like a full-time minister is what they're referring to. The work of men like these has surely been used mightily of God to point people's eyes towards eternity. Here's my point. You can do the same job as someone who doesn't know Jesus, but to do it for entirely different reasons and in a very different sort of way. Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, big or small, do it with all your might. Do it with passion and love, sweat equity and craft that takes years, if not decades. Remember, Daniel is around 70 here. I don't think I mentioned that actually at the beginning. Daniel's about 70 years old in this passage. Be so good, I love this phrase, be so good that they can't ignore you. The reality is that when you're really good at whatever it is you do, whether it is your job, whether you get paid for it or not, it's not your job at all. It's something that you do as a part of your life and your ministry and your mission. When you're really good at whatever it is, people will take notice. And there's opportunity for you to thrive in a place where there may, may be confusion about competing narratives about what the good life is and about what love is or about what it means to be a way of Jesus. Do such good works that people see your good deeds and they just acknowledge that alone. Excellence. How do we, how do we Daniel? This is a clear thread line through the, all, through the whole book. Number two, character. Daniel 6, chapter 4, let's go back to what we just read. At this, the chief ministers and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, I read this phrase and just thought, my goodness, how good does it feel in my soul to know that some people aren't corrupt? This isn't Daniel was sinless. Daniel's not, does that feel good to anyone else? Just say to yourself, there's another human being that is not corrupt. Some of you are like, it's me. <laughs> good, good for you. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> or to think this, some people aren't negligent. Right, you can have a lot of integrity. This is something that haunted my ministry earlier on. And to be honest, it still haunts it regularly. It's like, oh, to, to walk with such, I try to walk in integrity without corruption. With, and then like just the negligence that can creep in. Oh, you just, like, that dude's always 30 minutes late. Oh, it's just cultural. I'm just really busy. Like, no. Just throwing myself under the bus on that one, friends. This, there's something about Daniel's character that screams off the pages. So what characterizes character? Some people aren't corrupt. Some people are more than talk. 
Anyone can say they have integrity, right? But action is the real indicator of character. Your character determines who you are and what you do. That's why you can never separate a leader's character from their actions. If a leader's actions and intentions continually work against each other, if there's no posture of forgiveness, no posture of seeking grace and surrender, look at their character to find out why. Character is more than talk. Two, some people know that their talent is a gift, but their character is a choice. Your talent was just given to you. That natural ability to do stuff... We have no control over so much. We don't get to choose our parents or our life circumstances or the privilege we were born into, but we do get to choose our character. This is why the victimization thing that's happening in our culture is so busted up and broken. That's why we need to listen to the older generation on this one. Many of us who are younger, we play the victim at every impasse. You and you alone are responsible for your character. You and you alone. We create, right? We create it every time. We create good character every time we genuinely wrestle with doing the next right thing. Some people aren't corrupt. Some people aren't negligent. Some people finish well. True leadership always involves others. Like true leadership has a ceiling is a way to put it. It always involves others. Followers do not trust leaders whose character they know to be flawed and they won't continue to follow them. Leaders cannot rise above the limitations of their character. Anyone else know that to be true? Character will either limit or support a leader, depending on its strength. And so, we see Daniel's character in his motives. We see Daniel's character in his honesty. We see Daniel's character in his disciplines. We see Daniel's character in his convictions. He doesn't take credit for interpreting dreams, right? He says that God was the one who shut the mouths of lions. In his honesty, he spoke the truth to authorities regardless of whether he was unpopular. His character shines through in his disciplines. He continues to pray daily. We'll get to that in a minute. In his integrity, he had no interest in bribes or payoffs. We see Daniel's character in his convictions. He stayed committed to his friends and his beliefs even as he rose through the ranks. If you want to influence culture, you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to back it up with excellence in your vocation and with a life that makes people stop and pay attention. Because as one writer says, at the end of the day, your character is your destiny. Your character is your destiny. Like every great society in history including early America, was built around the pursuit of virtue, not the pursuit of happiness. And currently, so many are writing about there's no framework for moral or spiritual authority. The New York Times columnist and author David Brooks points out that we've lost a strategy to build character. We don't have a moral or spiritual framework of any kind. We, right, we talked last week about authority, and you now it's just it's gone. And he makes the point that unless you're Aristotle, <laughs> most of us can't keep up, can't create like a moral framework for ourselves. You can't do that. And what that does, he's just speaking of our culture, it leads to an amoral society, which almost always then leads to an immoral society. Which means that character sticks out more than ever before. Do, do you feel that? 
culturally, that character sticks out more than ever before in an age of so many fallen leaders, in an age of so much brokenness at the top. It's like, wow, when you see somebody of great character and without corruption, you're like, whoa, that, there's a unicorn. It's not an invitation to perfection. So I would simply say to this point about character is get your house in order. Get your house in order. Be like Jesus. Be a man or woman of integrity and honesty and humility and put the needs of others above yourself and be kind and faithful. Don't be flaky. Show up on time. Don't cancel via text. I don't know, whatever it is. Stick to it. Be a good husband and father. Be a good mother, a good child. Handle your money well. Sabbath and stop and rest knowing that life isn't about production. And let us not keep sinning so grace will increase, as Paul says. No matter, no matter what's coming at us, like, may we live, like it says in 1 Peter, our companion book to Daniel during this series, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, like Daniel, they may see your good deeds and then glorify God on the day that he visits us. The same thing happens in Acts. It's a great story. Like this silversmith named Demetrius. He's like making these statues and Paul is preaching the gospel. And God, by, by Paul, by sharing the good news of Jesus, it's affecting the financial systems around the goddess Artemis because there was a whole, like, there's a whole um, financial infrastructure around Artemis. And so people are accusing him of like disrupting the, the financial systems. And so somebody like grabs Paul and grabs his leaders and they thrust him basically before the court in this theater. And then we read this in verse 35. The city clerk quiets this crowd, this mob that has been like, get these guys out of here. They're disrupting everything in our whole way of being. And we're like, all right, maybe Paul deserved it. Maybe he was being a jerk. We read, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples. This is a Roman official. They've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. They were preaching the, God, the, the gospel without even like blaspheming the, the Artemis. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. They can press charges. As it is, we're actually in danger of being charged for rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we'd not be able to account for the commotion since there's no reason for it. Here again, a Roman official who has no stake in the way of Jesus is like, look, I don't believe what they believe, but they're not blaspheming the goddess and they're not robbing temples. They're proclaiming the good news and it happens to be disrupting the whole system. Fine, you can take it up with, with whatever, but you can see there's character. There's character and there's character. And there's character every step of the way. This is how we Daniel. Okay, I gotta go quick with this last one. Three, faithfulness. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, looking out at Jerusalem, just as he had done before. If I have a name for this sermon, that'll be it. Just as he'd done before. Nothing changed. He's 70 years old. What am I going to do now? 
There's a new king, a new edict. There's a new law coming at me. There's a new way I could compromise. Like, come on. I'm going to get, love you guys. I've been nothing but good to y'all. But you think I'm going to compromise now? He is not worried about the consequences of doing the right thing. Because we never have to be worried about that. Three times a day. Do you think that that was forming him in any way? Doing something like that. Turning your attention three times a day and going, God, I know you're good. Worthy of my praise. God, will you search, search me and know me? Know my anxious thoughts. Know my sin. Three times. Just, I'm going to keep getting down. Help me, Lord, to see. See my neighbor. See where I can love. See where I can serve the king while still remaining allegiance to you. Like, whatever he prayed. We don't know all the things that Daniel prayed. But every time he kneeled down three times a day, looking out toward Jerusalem, which we'll get to in a minute, that changes him. It forms him. It grows his faith. It cultivates his courage. It gives him resolve to do the right thing, and it brings clarity. There's so much confusion and so many minds, and what do I do, and how do I do it, and should I be fearful for my life or not? He has so much clarity because he's what? has habits. We sometimes are like, we're waiting for like that magic like bullet. Well, like I know if I really just have a little more faith in my head, somehow God will zap me. This is just one more of the thousands in the Bible that practices help us experience and know God's grace. We don't earn, God's not looking for us to earn anything, but he's like, if you would like to enjoy the riches of peace and joy and faith and freedom and life, you got to have some regular habits because you are incredibly jacked up. Hear that? You're really jacked. I'm really jacked up. And so these practices just help me wade into the water. They help me get there. Every day, three times a day, this is forming Daniel. There is a faithfulness to these rhythms and practices that help open him up to the goodness of God. Look, technology will never be able to speed up your character or your relationships or a healthy marriage or parenting or legacy or skill in your job. It won't. Faithfulness, like obedience, long obedience in the same direction. This stuff takes years, decades, takes a lifetime. Three times a day over 70-something years, he's praying. He's not just doing any spiritual practice. He's praying. Prayer isn't one of the things that we do. It's the most important thing that we do. And if you don't like that statement or disagree, please come find me after, and I would like to lovingly make my case. <laughs> or we can just listen to the sermon three weeks ago. Do not underestimate the power of quiet faithfulness over a lifetime. In our cultural moment, how are we to influence others in the way of Jesus? How are we going to bear witness to the good and the true and the beautiful? How are we going to do what Daniel did in witnessing to Yahweh, the one true God in the thick of Babylon? With excellence. With paying attention to our character. And walking in faithfulness. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, 
his manifesto for what life is to look like in the church, the kingdom of God, he writes this, or says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Rain came down, streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. How do you, Daniel? How do you influence through love? How do you withstand temptations to compromise? You build well. You build well. Daniel doesn't have a tent. He doesn't have a shack. He's got a mansion. He's got a compound in his soul that is built on the rock. <laughs> Greg Strickland, our residence, he had this image of like a, a skiff versus an aircraft carrier. It's like a, a skiff or a dinghy is influenced by the smallest of ways where a carrier actually sets awake and makes its own wave. This is what it is to build well. To be a skiff or a carrier, to be a tent or a compound. What, in Jesus' words, are we building on? And so I'd like to close us as we go to a time of listening together and prayer together and responding to all this with one last passage. <laughs> this infamous story of Daniel in the lion's den is mentioned in the New Testament in a letter to a community of Jesus followers, just like us. And we read in Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And the writer goes off. You wanna know about the ancients? And he's like, Moses, Enoch, Abraham, Rahab. He's all over the place. The writer just keeps going through this person and this person, this person. They were commended for their faith. They had faith. They had this kind of faith. They could see stuff that others didn't see because they had faith. They had hope because they had a bigger assurance about what was most true. And then it gets to verse 33, and we get a little Daniel reference. You know who else was commended? It was, it, it was those who trusted God to shut the mouths of lions. And then it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, surrounded by all these people that have come before. Since we are surrounded by faith like this, these legends are our people, and faith is what made them legends. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, so easy, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Without faith, man, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I want to please God, and so we need some bit of faith, and he will reward. It says he literally will reward those who then seek after him. Go back to Daniel praying and looking out his window. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went to his upstairs room where the windows opened and he prayed toward 
Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is in ruins. Jerusalem is far from where he is. Jerusalem is the home that was destroyed by these Babylonians he's living in. Jerusalem is the ultimate icon at this moment in time of uncertainty because it's in ruins. And so you have Daniel on his knees three times a day looking toward Jerusalem with a faith-filled posture. Daniel has faith that Jerusalem would again be restored, a faith that God was continuing and is an unchanging God, and that he is a God who's in control of history, and that whatever may come in Babylon, his eyes are fixed on Jerusalem, which is a way in the New Testament of saying his eyes were fixed on heavenly things, on things more true than anything he sees around him. He had eyes, like the author in Hebrew says, to see, to see clearly in an age of confusion. Assurance about what he couldn't see. He can see what others can't. His eyes are set on the things above. He is so heavenly minded that he is actually some earthly good because he is being shaped by this bigger story, by a perfect king and by a perfect love. And this, this is what allows him to bear witness in the incredible way that Daniel does. To influence like Jesus, to weather the storms. He can see. He can see what others can't see. He can see what others can't see. And so you'll notice in this series, we didn't drill down into particular hot-button cultural issues. Daniel invites us to these principles that are critical for us to be able to walk in faithfulness and walk in excellence and walk in character, walk in joy and freedom. Holy Spirit, would you come? We trust you, Lord. And in this moment, with the few minutes that we have remaining together, that you, Lord, would move. We want to see your kingdom here in this moment. You can do in a moment, Lord, what oftentimes takes a lifetime to do. You can institute practices and rhythms in people's hearts. You can convict people of sin with such kindness and gentleness. You can fill people with such rest and joy in their heart, even as they weather storms. Holy Spirit, I sense that there may be even some who you want to reignite their passion for sharing and demonstrating the good news of Jesus, break their heart for their neighbor, to bear witness in the way of Daniel. There are some, Lord, who realize the ceiling of their character. And with faith, once again, come to the altar, come before you to say, Lord, would you, would you help me figure out the next right thing to do? So I don't know what the Lord wants to do in this moment. 
But the invitation that we extend to each other as family, we know not all of you are followers of Jesus. That's okay. You're so welcome here. We're so glad you're here. For those that are, the invitation is to actually be open and full of faith, recognizing we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who are spurring us on to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the one that all of those in the great hall of witnesses was waiting for, and that in this moment, we can come with a real openness and trust that God might want to move in our hearts. So Holy Spirit, come.